Hey there, welcome back. We're glad you could make it for Season 2, Episode 6 of The Undercover Podcast. I'm Isabella Podwinski. In today's episode, we'll be exploring the intersection between political ideology and vaccine hesitancy. What fuels it? Who is affected by it? And what will it mean for Australia's COVID recovery? We'll take a trip to a community on Australia's east coast referred to as the country's anti-vax capital. We know that misinformation and political ideology influence adults, but how is it affecting our young people and is there anyone trying to help? We'll speak to a member of an anti-vax group who says following government health advice is gullible and dangerous. And throughout, we'll speak to Dr David Smith, Associate Professor at the University of Sydney, who's researched vaccine hesitancy along the political spectrum. But first, Australia's vaccination campaign is only just starting to gather momentum for those over the age of 50. But new research is indicating a growing section of Australia's political right are unlikely to sign up for the COVID jab. Jack Alfonso explores where the disproportionate growth comes from and whether or not Australia will see politicisation of the vaccine as observed overseas. Okay, so we'll just start off with your name. Pete. And how old are you? I'm 53. At the upcoming election, who would you say that you would vote for at a federal level? I would vote Libertarian if there was a Libertarian candidate available. Do you believe that, you know, the individual is like a self-governing enterprise and that the individual knows best for themselves? I believe that people should have the right to make their own decisions as long as they're not causing direct harm to another person. Say someone came to your door right now and offered you the COVID vaccine, would you accept it? No. Liberalism. It's been a cornerstone of philosophical thought for Western countries dating back to the 18th century emphasizing freedom of the individual and the right to govern oneself. This driving philosophy has provided the bedrock for monumental historical events, most notably the French Revolution and the Boston Tea Party. So it is unsurprising that with the concept of liberalism comes a more inherent distrust of massive public institutions. In a contemporary setting, this means a distrust of governments, governing bodies, and major private institutions. And in a time where mass funding and resources have been thrown at COVID-19, resulting in the quickest development of a vaccine ever, there are still those that distrust the process and feel as though their individual rights are being threatened by the current vaccine rollout. Recent data here in Australia indicates that scepticism over the vaccine is becoming politicised. In a survey conducted by Vox Pop Labs for the ABC, a University of Sydney professor found that among those surveyed on the political right, 19% were very unlikely to get the vaccine, compared to just 4% on the left and 5% who identified as centrists, showing an alarming growth of 8% since the last survey conducted. Traditionally, hyper-politicisation of a vaccine has never existed in Australia. As liberalism is a philosophy that is mainly found among the political right, the question is if liberalism is a driving factor in vaccine hesitancy. So I'm hesitant to say at this point that there is definitive evidence of that divide. That was Associate Professor at the University of Sydney, Dr David Smith, whose research examines political relations between states and minorities. He says that while the results are concerning, caution should be taken when viewing these figures as entirely representative of the Australian right. On the basis of one survey, we still can't really see 
how big or how persistent that disparity is. I mean, that's as good as surveys get, but with any survey about very current opinion, it's best if you can see more than one. Through his research into vaccine hesitancy, Dr. Smith noted that there wasn't quite the apparent major political party divide among the hesitant population. Instead, hesitancy is correlated with those who place a minor political party first on the ballot, a surface level symptom of a distrust in major institutions. We didn't find a left-right divide. What we found was a divide between people whose first preference is for the major parties and people whose first preference is for minor parties. That indicates more generally, outside necessarily of the left-right division, that people who are just less satisfied with the political system are less likely to be trusting of vaccination. The latest research from Dr. Smith and colleagues, however, is unsettling. We re-interviewed the same people that we interviewed back in 2017, and we did find significantly higher levels of reluctance around a COVID vaccine. When we asked people why they were reluctant, 70% of them said that they were worried about the safety of the COVID vaccine. Overseas, the situation is similar. In France, an article published in the medical journal The Lancet found that the more extreme a political party someone aligned with, the less likely they were to get vaccinated. In the US, a survey conducted by The Economist in March found that 49% of Republican men said they would not get a shot to protect them from COVID, with a cultural circuit of vaccine misinformation driven by key conservative power brokers, including you know who. When you test, when you do testing to that extent, you're going to find more people, you're going to find more cases. So I said to my people, slow the testing down, please. And some of his more prominent followers. More deaths have been connected to the new COVID vaccines over the past four months than to all previous vaccines combined over a period of more than 15 years. Dr. Smith says it is a cause for concern globally, but again, isn't entirely representative of the Australian right. Trump gave the global right a kind of shared vocabulary that really made people feel that they were in touch with a global movement. So Trump as global figurehead, yes, he does continue to have th this influence on a section of the Australian media and a section of Australian commentary and certainly on a section of Australian social media. But it is important to note that that's really amplified beyond how big it actually is. What is important to remember is that these people are not anti-vaxxers. People such as Pete hold genuinely legitimate concerns. I've got seven children. One of those is immunocompromised with Down syndrome and I cannot afford to not be here to look after them. Alienating these people from daily life is the worst case scenario because as Dr. Smith says, we need to get as many people on board as possible to achieve herd immunity. We keep seeing around 25% of the population who answer maybe in surveys to would you get the vaccine. We need to get as much of that 25% as possible getting vaccinated. And you don't do that through demonization. You don't do that through alienating them or, you know, all of which feed into the kinds of concerns that they have in the first place. So we've seen that politically, vaccine hesitancy is associated with a greater distrust of major institutions. Data sets available about COVID vaccination intentions are showing that this is occurring more frequently on, but not exclusively limited to, the political right. So the question is, how do we fix this type of vaccine hesitancy? 
In the USA, the plan is to decentralize the process. For Australia though, Dr. Smith wants to see something different. We've had vaccines developed for COVID-19 within the space of 10 to 12 months, which is absolutely remarkable, but that's not what vaccine hesitant people want to hear. They want to hear that these vaccines were developed in accordance with the same scientific standards as any other vaccine. That is the message that needs to be promoted. Because the longer this is allowed to grow, the harder it becomes to deal with. And the more embedded vaccine hesitancy becomes in society, the less likely we are to achieve herd immunity, postponing a return to life before COVID that little bit longer. That was Jack Alfonso, analysing the role political ideology has on vaccine hesitancy. But regardless of what position you fall on the political spectrum, people across the board seem to be more hesitant than usual when it comes to the COVID-19 vaccine. This paints a worrying picture as we have to achieve a high level of vaccination to reach herd immunity. Our next story will take us to New South Wales' north coast, where reporter Warwick Jones investigates the anti-vax capital of Australia. How are they responding to the COVID-19 vaccine? And what kind of ramifications will this have on the state's road to recovery? So, Izzy, this story begins in September last year. Lockdowns are in full swing and small groups of people are leaving their homes in defiance of public health orders to protest the government restrictions. Do you remember this? A little bit, yeah. It's the anti-lockdown protests. They were called Freedom Day, Freedom March. There is in Melbourne, Brisbane, Sydney, but by far the biggest turnout relative to population size was in Byron Bay. No social distancing, no personal protective equipment. Hundreds of people had flocked to the Byron foreshore, holding placards that were critical of the government's response to the virus. But some of them were actually skeptical of the virus itself and were accusing governments, media and healthcare professionals of basically conspiring to fake a global pandemic in order to mass vaccinate Australians. Okay, but how did we get here? Why is the Northern Rivers this anti-vax community? Right, so the Northern Rivers is this section of the New South Wales North Coast from about the Queensland border up up north down to about Coffs Harbour um, down south. But it's perhaps best known for the sort of alternative lifestyle hubs that are Byron Bay, Nimbin and Mullumbimby. You've probably heard of some of these places. I have heard of Nimbin, yes. Right, so... People are known to smoke weed in the in the open, they have drum circles in the streets, and interestingly, they're much more likely to see a naturopath than they are to see a GP. That's kind of typical of this area. Oh, very typical, yes. Well, people are drawn to this region largely because of that alternative lifestyle. So that's Heidi Robertson. She's an administrator of the Northern Rivers Vaccination Supporters Group who advocate for vaccines from within the Northern Rivers community. And actually, Heidi used to be into alternative medicine. Byron Bay is renowned for alternative lifestyle, healthy living, lots of fresh air and sunshine, which is all fantastic. Don't get me wrong. I just don't subscribe anymore to the kind of alternative therapies like naturopathy and chiropractic and homeopathy and so on. And there's good reason not to support those kinds of therapies. I mean, firstly, they're proven not to work. But also the culture around alternative medicines can drive people away from things like vaccines, which can be really dangerous. 
Certainly for a long time, the Northern Rivers has been one of the centres of vaccine hesitancy or outright vaccine refusal in Australia. Wait, who was that? I am Dr David Smith. I'm an Associate Professor at the University of Sydney. And David was really quick to point out that there are other anti-vaccination hubs in Australia, but far and away the lowest childhood vaccination rates in Australia can be found in the Northern Rivers. So to give you a bit of perspective, approximately 95% of all Australian children are fully vaccinated. But in Byronshire, which includes Byron Bay, Mullumbimby and Nimbin, one in three or a third of two-year-olds aren't fully vaccinated. And in Mullumbimby, which is just a 20-minute drive from Byron Bay, just half of kids are fully vaccinated. In Mullumbimby, the vaccination rates compare to South Sudan. The question is... And some schools in the area, it's reported that just 6% of kids are fully vaccinated when they enter PrEP. Okay, so what is the community looking like in respect to COVID and the COVID vaccinations? So Australia's vaccination rate is kind of low. As we know, the rollout's been quite slow. But unfortunately, there's no geographic data that can allow us to compare the Northern Rivers to other areas of Australia. But what we do know is that there are people in the community that are seeking alternatives to COVID vaccines. Just yesterday, I came across an A4 flyer that somebody had printed out and put on a community notice board. And the heading was COVID and flu shots. And underneath was a recipe for a fruit and vegetable smoothie. (laughs) That's insane. It's funny, but it's actually quite serious. Things like this can give people a false sense of security so that they think they have an immunity and they put themselves or others at risk. But it can also stop people from seeking medical advice and medical attention. A kale and parsley smoothie, as this flyer was promoting, doesn't stimulate your body to make antibodies to something it hasn't encountered before. It's just, it's not possible. I mean, this is why we have vaccines in the first place. It's Mm. kind of to hack your natural immunity and give you antibodies to a disease without you having to get sick from that disease. And unfortunately, it's not just a matter of individuals making a choice that affects them and nobody else. The truth of the matter is that even if 95% of Australians get vaccinated against COVID-19, if a large number of people in the Northern Rivers choose not to get vaccinated, that's a threat to people everywhere. If you've got a concentrated group of people who don't have the vaccine, then you don't have herd immunity in that community. So you need herd immunity to protect people who can't get vaccinated, so that's babies or people who are perhaps too sick to get vaccinated, and those who are vulnerable to a disease even after they've been vaccinated, which is something we've seen with COVID in in the US. Right. When you have herd immunity, those people are much less likely to get infected because the disease can't get a foothold in the community because too many people are immune. If, though, you get an area where vaccination levels are a lot lower than that, say 60% or 50%, then the disease can easily get a foothold. And as I've just pointed out, it's not just those who choose not to get vaccinated who are at risk. So the geographical clustering of vaccine fuses is a major problem from a public health point of view. COVID-19 is no different from this. Given that some experts are suggesting 85% herd immunity is required, if 30% of our sample is hesitant, then that means that people who can't get vaccinated are never going to get the kind of protection that you can get from having a highly vaccinated community. And this is true of all communities. It's true of Byron, it's true of Australia, it's true of the global community. 
Unfortunately though, Byron has a unique risk factor. Byron Bay is a huge tourist destination hub for people that come here from all over the world. And once things start to open up again, if we don't reach that threshold, it'll be like a wildfire, you know, ripping through the community. Okay, so let's just take a step back. Why don't people in the Northern Rivers want to get vaccinated? What are some of the factors that come into play? Right, so there is actually a really obvious answer when it comes to the Northern Rivers. One of the reasons why people are hesitant about vaccines is because they're concerned with living naturally. The naturalistic fallacy, you know, that everything natural is good and everything that's not natural must be therefore bad. Basically, vaccines are not part of the natural environment that humans have evolved to survive in. Ipso facto, vaccines are bad. That goes back a long way before COVID-19. That, that relates to all vaccines. The truth is that whether or not something is natural tells you precisely nothing about whether or not it's safe. But this is the stereotype of the anti-vaxxer, you know, this natural tree-hugging hippie. It, it is not an entirely unfair stereotype. The, the number of people who refuse vaccines is broader than that. It's not just those people who want that natural lifestyle. But there is some truth to that stereotype, even if they're not all living the full-blown hippie lifestyle. In fact, as you will have heard in our previous story, a recent study by Vox Pops Labs actually put the most hesitant group as conservatives. I mean, people on the right of politics. It seems to be one of these rare issues that spans the political divide. So there is some other element to vaccine refusal in the Northern Rivers. And what's that? There is a strong peer pressure component. It's very tribal. If all of your friends believe it, you're more likely to go along with it yourself. That's Ken McLeod. He founded an organisation that campaigns against anti-vaxxers. If people move here looking for that alternative lifestyle, part of that community in a lot of cases is not vaccinating your children. And as you probably already know, there are people who lead this push not to vaccinate children. They're professionals, they make money doing this. And perhaps one of the most successful anti-vaxxers in the world actually lives in the Northern Rivers. And when she started harassing the grieving parents of kids who had died from vaccine-preventable diseases, Ken McLeod said, that's enough. So we've been active against anti-vaccination networks and cranks ever since. Okay, and so what can we do to get the Northern Rivers back to, I guess, normality? Yeah, so in 2015, the government introduced a no jab, no pay policy, which is basically withholding welfare payments from parents who didn't vaccinate their children. This equated to a vaccine mandate. Unfortunately, a vaccine mandate probably won't work in the Northern Rivers because people are already so anti-government and so entrenched in their beliefs about vaccines. But David says before we introduce mandates, we need to first exhaust all other options. And according to his research, far and away, the best option is actually to advocate from within the community like the Northern Rivers vaccination supporters. One of the reasons we, we hope that we come across as trustworthy to people is that we're just community members and we're doing this because we care about our community. And part of the message we are trying to get across is that you can lead this alternative lifestyle and vaccinate your kids. Thanks, Warwick. Thank you. Thanks, Izzy. That was me and Warwick Jones earlier, talking about vaccine refusal in the Northern Rivers region. 
The COVID-19 vaccination process has been one fraught with opposition, from libertarians protecting their individual rights to the bohemians of Byron Bay. Liam Healy talks to a member of Australians vs. the Agenda, an anti-vax group who took to the streets of Melbourne last February to protest the government's COVID rollout. I just don't understand why people can look at something that's designed to save their lives, made within a year and just openly accept, oh yeah, that'll work. It's gullible and dangerous behaviour. That's Tom. He's 24 and for the past year, he's subscribed to a group called Australians vs. the Agenda describing themselves as insiders working with a team of journalists. Their mission statement claims they strive to uncover corruption and expose the truth for the people of Australia. So you're choosing to not reveal your full name to our audience today. Can you explain to our audience why that is? Well, you have all these people out there who attack your views online because they feel like they have some right to, which is why I try to remain as private as possible. It's not to say I'm not proud of how I feel or my standpoints. It's quite the opposite, actually. It just seems like today, we can't openly say what we feel without someone feeling they have a right to say they know better than me. I disagree with people's views, but that doesn't entitle me or someone else to attack someone personally on Facebook because they don't hold the same values as them. People lose common sense when it comes to issues like this. You get what I'm saying? So take our audience through how you became a part of this group. What drew you to like, their ideas? Did you find, were they easy to find? Um, it was probably about a year ago, something like that. I made a comment on a news post. It had some to do with the easing of restrictions in Victoria after the first lockdown. I was really frustrated with this lengthy process of people losing their jobs, being kept at home, almost basically against their wills. Anyway, someone got into contact with me and told me about Anthony and his page, his work. You see all this stuff on Facebook that you just don't agree with. It was almost a relief to actually see people who felt the same way that I did. I have a natural sort of learned ability to be able to understand how to engage people and how to get people to take action. That was Anthony Kalouf, the founder of Australians vs The Agenda, who was arrested by Victoria Police on the 5th of September 2020, just days prior to a planned protest in Melbourne's CBD. So you're sort of talking about a network of people. How do you communicate with them, especially the laws surrounding information sharing on sites like Facebook and Twitter? Well, you know, Facebook's crazy now. The way they censor things, it's just not right. So personally, I just stick to private message chats, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, to save myself from being harassed. It's just easier. According to Queensland University of Technology professor Axel Bruns, private messages and apps are the great unknown when it comes to debunking misinformation and the influence of misinformation groups. Do you feel that your viewpoints about the pandemic are sort of misunderstood by other people? Oh, absolutely, mate. We march for our basic freedom and human rights not inciting violence or anything like that. We get labelled radical by the mainstream media who just want to make a bigger deal of us than we really are. I mean, we're normal people at the end of the day. So have you ever been vaccinated for anything else? Flu, something like that, meningococcal? I mean, not since I was old enough to choose what goes into my body. I don't have an issue with parents vaccinating their kids or anything like that. Just as long as they have done their own research. It's hard to really trust anything these days. People just accept what they're told. And while health experts and medical practitioners hail the vaccine as safe, nothing comes without its drawbacks. According to the Therapeutic Goods Association, the most common side effects of the AstraZeneca vaccine are as mild as headaches and muscular pains. But some have grown wary of even more serious side effects, with 13 cases of blood clotting in vaccine receivers across the country as of May 13. Do you feel like if this process had taken a bit longer, you'd feel differently? 
I mean, probably not. You have these companies vying to be the main distributor of a vaccine. It makes no sense. Isn't this supposed to be in the public interest? Like, instead of it's corporations and businesses controlling the movement of the government, you've got these countries like India and the UK who are in absolute all sorts due to this virus. Yet we're here, an island nation, having basically eradicated the virus locally. Don't rush the vaccine. What for? So we can have people from other countries come here quicker for the economy. But could I not argue that by doing so, we're closer to reaching life pre-COVID? As Thomas said, is something he's marching for. We look really hard at how quickly this vaccine was made. The blood clots people are getting. This is not a surefire solution. Hold this vaccine to the same scientific standards as other vaccines of the past. It's panic, just for panic's sake. But as you've already heard, the vaccines have been held to the same standard. And this is just a common misconception. Can I ask, where are you getting this information? <laughs> Mate, it's easy to find if you really look, instead of just scrolling through your Twitter feed, reading headlines. Is that an answer? It's the one I'm giving you. But there is a bit of a problem with finding your own information. I went back to Dr. David Smith, Associate Professor at the University of Sydney, who says... Unfortunately, when people go out and do their own research, because the scientific publishing world actually keeps most of the important scientific research behind closed doors, so to speak. It's uh, institutionally paywalled. That means that people are going and doing research with whatever else is out there and is publicly available. However, often what is freely available is misinformation disguising itself as scientific information, according to Dr. Smith. And Unfortunately, sort of anti-vax sources and sources of disinformation are very, very good at getting their disinformation out there and in many cases making it look like something credible. Three days after Melbourne's mini lockdown in February, Tom attended an anti-vaccination protest which began in Faulkner Park and subsequently marched up St Kilda Road towards the Alfred Hospital before police intervention. So... You're walking down St Kilda Road, a part of this protest, numbers around the 500s. What's going through your mind? Genuinely, it was one of the most exhilarating experiences I've ever had. Last year, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, it was such an awful year. And to just be amongst like-minded people and let it be known that we won't just accept this vaccination process for what it is, it was more of a relief than anything. Do you begrudge people for getting vaccinated just for the peace of mind? No, of course not, mate. It's just... Be silly. People are entitled to do whatever they want with their own bodies. That's my stance. Although a large percentage of the population feeling the same way as Tom could stall Australia from reaching herd immunity. I just really encourage people to be careful. Look deeper than what's on the surface. It's so easy to just accept what people of authority tell you as fact. Say we're just speaking hypothetically that hotel quarantine breakouts across Melbourne hadn't happened last year and the Andrews government had gotten through that first lockdown period, no worries, and the city was open earlier. Do you think you'd still feel this way? Jeez, that's a big hypothetical. I'd still feel the same way, I'm certain of that. It didn't take one grave error from some premier, who we haven't seen all year, by the way, for me to form this opinion. We're not reactionary, we're proactive. At the time of recording, a second planned protest occurred on Saturday, May 15th. As vaccination fear and hesitancy continues to grow amongst Australians at the beginning of the vaccine rollout, we will wait patiently to see whether those hesitant to be vaccinated will prevent the government's goal of herd immunity. That was Liam Healy in conversation with member of Melbourne-based anti-vax group Australians vs. The Agenda. Young people are becoming more and more tech-savvy by the day, 
This exposes them to all different kinds of information, but this information can be complicated, divisive, and sometimes false, as we've seen with COVID-19 conspiracies and vaccine scepticism. Riley Galloway explores how misinformation is affecting children and teens and how our education system is playing catch-up. David Gregory is a science teacher at a primary school in South Australia. Recently, he heard something pretty alarming in his classroom. I heard them talking to other students in the class saying about how the COVID vaccines can kill you. This isn't the first time David's had to deal with this sort of thing. He tells me that COVID comes up quite a bit in the classroom and the things he hears just aren't always true. And you can't really blame them. They're kids. But it is a problem and it is scary. Nowadays, children are so plugged in from such a young age and they're exposed to really adult concepts and ideas. It got me thinking about how misinformation comes into all of this. Are we doing enough to help kids navigate this complicated world? For many young people, news is not necessarily something they actively seek out. It's something that is always there and that's often impossible to escape through social media, through the conversations that we have. That's Tanya Notley. She's a senior lecturer at Western Sydney University in the field of media and communication. Through our surveys, we've learned that young people are really engaged with the news media and they care about it as well. And we see really quite significant levels of engagement that increase from 2017 to 2020. The big increase is really around news that they get from friends, from family, from teachers, but also from social media. You know, it's great that young people are consuming news um, in various ways ways, but we have to think about when we teach news media literacy to young people, how we teach that when most of their news is being consumed in this socially mediated way. David also spoke to me about the importance of teaching children to think critically about the information they consume. I think it's hugely important to teach the kids how to be effective, critical consumers of all forms of media. We need to arm them with the tools to build informed opinions and views when they are just bombarded with information. One of the ways that we approach that in primary schools is through written texts, firstly, and we also want them to start to understand that because there's so much information out there online, you can't always be certain that the sources that are putting that information out there are necessarily reliable or, more importantly, unbiased. So talking to students about how different authors of information have different purposes for putting it out there and what language in texts authors might use in attempts to persuade people. David says we also need to be really considerate of the limitations of students making these calls because at the end of the day, they are still kids. So we kind of work on developing those skills starting from an early age and improving them as students get older. It sounds like David really gets it. He's personally doing all he can to help his students become what he calls active consumers. Not just a passive consumer. Don't just sit there, kids, and let the words go in and take them for exactly what they are. Think about what you're reading, what you're viewing. But Tanya is concerned that the education system as a whole in Australia is possibly letting kids down. 
So we asked in our survey in 2017 and 2020 if young people had had any lessons in school to help them think critically about the news and only one in five young people said that it happened in the past year which was a big surprise to us and there was no increase from 2017 to 2020 so that really tells us that perhaps young people are not getting enough support to critically engage with news across the curriculum. Tanya also knows that it can be really tough for teachers and it's a really tough job. We've surveyed hundreds of Australian teachers and we've interviewed teachers and what we found is they think it's critically important to teach young people about news but they struggle to do that because of a crowded curriculum but also for many other reasons because they're not being given enough training and support because they find it difficult to talk about really sensitive news issues in the classroom. Nicola Moore is an Engagement and Participation Officer at the Office of the Commission of Children and Young People in South Australia. Bit of a mouthful, but basically her work is ensuring that young people can participate in policy making and that young people are included and engaged in conversations around politics. Through her work, Nicola, much like David, comes across some young COVID sceptics as well. So uh, I've been in a few conversations recently where young people might say that COVID isn't real. So you kind of have these tidbits of young people where they'll be talking that you can kind of directly see the impact of misinformation. Like Tanya, Nicola is concerned that children aren't being prepared to face and understand the information that they're being bombarded with. And we don't have young people that have been upskilled with the skills to be able to take all of that information and be critical with it. So they're really critical of our institutions, but less so about the information that they're getting. But despite flaws in the system, Nicola has a lot of faith in young people. She sees it every day at work. You know, really young kids that are passionate about really complex issues and that want so badly to be included in the conversation and to represent themselves. And so now more than ever, we need to be talking about media literacy and helping kids make sense of this fast-paced and exciting and wild digital world that we live in. We talk about change a lot when we talk about young people and that's often because they have this combination of a critical eye and a hopeful heart in a lot of the movements that we see today, whether that's Black Lives Matter, whether that's looking at the climate movement. Often all of those movements, the one commonality is social justice and young people. That was Nicola Moore speaking with Riley Galloway. That's all we have for today's episode. We're glad you could join us. To read up-to-date information on Australia's vaccine rollout, always check the Government Health website. You can find a link in the show notes. Undercover is brought to you by RMIT Journalism. Thank you to our reporters, Jack Alfonso, Warwick Jones, Liam Healy and Riley Galloway. This episode was produced and presented by me, Isabella Podwinski. Special thanks to Dr David Smith and to our executive producers, Tito Ambio, Janik Rogers and Zoe Daniel. If you want to get in touch, leave us a message at 9018-5005. You can also contact us on Twitter at cover underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with episode seven. See you then.